The Gospel reading is from Matthew 21, verses 23 to 32. When he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him as he was teaching, and they said, By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? Jesus said to them, I will also ask you one question. If you tell me the answer, then I will also tell you by what authority I do these things. Did the baptism of John come from heaven, or was it of human origin? And they argued with one another, If we say from heaven, he will say to us, Why then did you not believe him? But if we say of human origin, we are afraid of the crowd, for all regard John as a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And he said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. What do you think? A man had two sons. He went to the first and said, Son, go and work in the vineyard today. He answered, I will not. But later he changed his mind and went. The father went to the second and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir. But he did not go. Now which of the two did the will of his father? They said the first. And Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are going into the kingdom of God ahead of you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even after you saw it, you did not change your minds and believe him. The word of the Lord. pray. Gracious and loving God, we ask that you open our hearts and our minds that we might hear your word to us this day. We pray these things in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Now, I was planning to set up this text so that you would know what to listen for, perhaps, when you heard from Matthew, because there's a lot going on even before Jesus is confronted in the temple. This is just following his triumphant entry into Jerusalem and the clearing of the temple. Jesus, as you know, was a faithful Jew, but he didn't follow the letter of the law, not like the scribes or Pharisees. He said, I've not come to abolish it, but to fulfill it. But that meant breaking it from time to time. He ate grain on the Sabbath. He cured the lame the maimed and the blind and mute. And he said, it is not what goes into the mouth that defiles, but what comes out of the heart. And he spoke that in contrast to the Jewish purity codes. He had radical teaching on marriage and divorce, and he blessed little children, and he befriended women, those who were considered second and even third class citizens in his day. 
And at the moment of this reading in Matthew's Gospel, he had just come into Jerusalem the day before to shouts of Hosanna and claims that he was the son of David. And the whole city was in turmoil. Everyone was asking, who is this? Who is this? He cleansed the temple, proclaiming, My house is not a den of robbers, but a house of prayer. And the blind and the lame came to him right then and there to be cured and healed. And it's here that the chief priests and the scribes saw these amazing things and they heard children crying out, Hosanna to to the son of David. And they were threatened and they were upset to say the least. And so they confronted him. They finally found the courage to just go up to him themselves. And the chief priests and the elders came to him and they said, by what authority, by what authority are you doing what you're doing? And Jesus responds. And he responds in a way that I think offers all of us hope. Even those who were there in that moment, those who he called out. Even as Jesus implicates the temple leaders, challenging them to see the error of their ways, he gives them another chance. The significance of hope in this story falls on us as well, because we are given a chance as well to get it right. As the text opens, Jesus' authority is called into question. But as is more often the case than not with Jesus, he does not answer the question. He simply asks a question of his own. And he turns the table on those who have confronted him. Jesus knows that he has authority. He knows that the authority that he has is within himself. That he is in God and God is in him. And he knows that if he tries to explain this, that they're never going to get it. They're not going to understand. And partly because those scribes and those Pharisees had authority too. It had been given to them by God in the time of Moses and passed down from generations Jesus knew that just as he knew that to argue about authority was really beside the point. Something else was more important. So Jesus did what he often did. He told a story. I like that about Jesus. It's easy to learn from him when he tells stories. Now, I have two sons myself. I have three sons, actually. They're not triplets, Anthony. But I do have twins. And my sons are a lot like the sons in this story. One of my sons, when he was a child, if I asked him to do something, he would fall on the floor in a tantrum. And at first it alarmed me. And I would pick him up and I'd shake him a little bit and say, come on, Nathan, get it together. I wasn't going to give away who it was. Some of you know Nathan. But I learned eventually to just kind of step over Nathan. Because Nathan would always do what was asked. He didn't like it, but he would do it. Nathan's brother was very nonchalant and easygoing. And I'd say, Andy, would you mow the yard? He'd go, yeah, Dad, sure, I'll do that. (laughs) And I distinctly remember a day when we were having company. 
And I said, Andy, the yard needs to be mowed. He said, okay, Dad, I'll do that. I got home. The grass had grown about this much higher. And I said, where's Andy? And Kristen said, well, he's out with his friends. And I said, well, I asked him to mow the yard. And so I texted him really quickly and said something like, you know that talk is cheap or something. <laughs> Within minutes, Andy showed up at the door. He's pretty fast. And he came and he said, I'm sorry, Dad, and I'll get right on it. And he mowed the yard. Now, as a father of these twins, I have to tell you that, that both of their behaviors is a little disconcerting. <laughs> that I don't want Nathan to throw a tantrum, and I don't want Andy to tell me, yes, I'm going to do it, and not follow through. And I'll have you know that they've both grown up to be fine people who usually do what they say, <laughs> and they no longer fall on the floor. But I can relate to this story I can relate to Jesus telling these scribes and teachers and elders that you can act like that too sometimes. That you say one thing and you do another. God wants us to act with integrity. God wants us to put our faith into action. The elders and the chief priests knew what God required of them. They were good at acknowledging that, even publicly, but when it came down to actually doing it, they fell short. They didn't practice what they preached, which is a challenge, I think, for all of us. Their behavior lacked integrity, and Jesus called them out on it. He called them to righteousness. He referred back to John, who was an example of righteousness, who came preaching righteousness. Now, a word like righteousness is one that carries a lot of baggage for us. It connotes someone who's holier than thou. But in the scriptures, it was not intended to be demeaning. It was an invitation to simply do the right thing, to do what you say you believe and to follow through. Righteousness and being righteous are positive attributes in Scripture. They're associated with doing the right thing, as in this case of the parable. The son who, didn't, who said he wouldn't, but he went and did it. He was the one who did the right thing, even though he said something else. God expects God's people to do the right thing too. And those who do what is right in the eyes of God are pleasing to God. Or maybe it's better to say that righteous people are those who act as God would act in the world, who are Christ-like in their behavior. But doing that is not always easy. It can be demanding and requires a great deal of sacrifice. As Scripture reveals, it involves social and political elements, not just individual consideration. Marcus Borg writes that righteousness in Scripture refers to the way a society is put together, its political and economic structure, its distribution of power and wealth and their effects on society, from the microcosm of the family to the macrocosm of nations and empires. In these contexts, righteousness is the equivalent, is the equivalent of justice, 
Righteousness and justice are so closely related that they're synonymous in Scripture. Let me give you an example. The prophet Amos, who lived two centuries after Israel's liberation from slavery in Egypt, but at a time when many of the same corruptions that the Israelites had experienced at the hands of the Egyptians were taking place within the community. And Amos wrote about this. There was a huge gap between the rich and the poor in Israel, between those with power and those without. And speaking in the name of God, Amos had this to say to Israel's elite, contrasting their behavior and worship with how they were treating each other. Amos said, I hate, I despise your festivals, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the offerings of well-being of your fatted animals, I will not look upon. Take away from me the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the melody of your harps, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Here, justice and righteousness mean the same thing, referring to fair and equal distribution of resources among God's people, and that's critical because people's lives depend on it. And until then, your festivals and assemblies are useless, Amos is saying. And we hear something similar from the prophet Micah. Shall you come before God with burnt offerings or tens of thousands of rivers of oil? No, what God requires is that we seek justice and that we love kindness and that we walk humbly with God. There is a relationship between these prophetic words and what concerns Jesus in the temple that day. He asked the synagogue leaders to pause and reconsider how they're behaving. He asked them to stop what they're doing and to get it right. He tells them, through the story of the two sons, that their temple practices mean nothing nothing if they don't practice justice, kindness, and humility in their everyday lives. Jesus has been exemplifying this all along in his own life. He reveals God's expectations as much through what he does as through anything he says. He shows them how to seek justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly. He shows them by doing the will of God even on the Sabbath, healing those who are sick, feeding those who are hungry. He shows them by blessing children and befriending women. He shows them by turning over the tables of the money changers and revealing hypocrisy wherever he finds it. He shows them by loving even the least of these, tax collectors and prostitutes. He shows them by widening the circle of his followers and welcoming those who do what God requires, regardless of their ethnic identity or their prior belief. The righteousness that Jesus embodies, when you get right down to it, is all about healthy relationships with self, with God, and others. It's an invitation to love God with everything that we are and to love our neighbor as ourselves. When we do that, we're acting justly. Now, the legacy of this place of Richmond Hill is tied to justice like that. We are committed here to reconciling relationships that have been torn apart long ago. 
Our prayers for better schools and quality health care, community wealth building and racial healing attest to that. But we also have to act upon our prayers, which is one of the things that inspires me about being a part of this community. You all are good at taking your prayers out into the streets. It's not enough to simply ask God to do it. We have to involve ourselves in the solutions that we seek. We must engage the world in ways that are Christ-like and just. Jesus reminded the scribes and elders of that in this text. And he reminds us too. He points out that religion and our religiosity can get in the way of relationship if we're not careful. It's what happened with the elders and the scribes. They were so preoccupied with religious observance and guarding authority that they lost sight of what was most important. It can happen to any of us. Our religious lives can easily degenerate into little more than simply maintaining the institution and no excitement concerning what God's active grace is doing in the world. As one commentator put it, we say we are going to work in the vineyard, but instead of harvesting the grapes, we spend our time rearranging the stones along the path. But Jesus expects more. He expects us to live our faith, to love neighbor and self, and to act upon what we say we believe. And that means caring for the relationships that we find ourselves in with one another and the world. The expectation is that we will not only say we believe in God, but that we will love as God loves us. Jesus pointed that out to the scribes and Pharisees. It's not enough to pay lip service to the faith. If you're not good at forgiving or saying you're sorry or including those different from yourselves or practicing humility in the world or seeking justice for others, then you're missing the point and you're missing out. The good news is it's not too late. No matter if we are more like that first son or that second son, there is still time to follow through, to act on the faith we profess, to love, to forgive, to reconcile, to seek justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly. It's never too late to do the right thing. Amen.